I'd like you to open your Bibles up to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23. Looks like another gorgeous day. I'm not sure if we have any fathers in here, but if we do, what was that laugh about? Happy Father's Day. Jeremiah chapter 23. We've been ministering on God's attributes for several weeks, pointing out the, the attributes in which they are only characterized by God. That is, those attributes which it is impossible for us to manifest. God's eternality, God's sovereignty, God's immutability. There are a few more that I'd like to minister on, and then as we begin to look at the other attributes of God that He expects us to follow after His example, such as His mercy and His love, His faithfulness, and so forth. But there are a few more that I'd like to minister on which pertain only to God. And the the message this morning is on God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence. I shared with you last week how that a friend of mine asked me the other day what I was going to minister on. I said the omnipresence of God. Last week I told him the immutability of God. And boy, he started grilling me right away for scriptures. And then as soon as I shared some, it opened up a lot more questions. And I'm sure that there are questions that are going to come up in our minds this morning when it comes to the subject of God's omnipresence. But I'm going to try to explain this as best as a human being can. We'll just have to let the scriptures say what they say. It's something that we have to take by faith. God's omnipresence is that perfection whereby God is present everywhere in both heaven and in earth. And there are many scriptures that point to God's omnipresence, but it isn't as though it's an isolated doctrine or teaching that is found somewhere. You usually find it in reference to someone bringing forth uh, a comment of God's judgment, or maybe in regard to worship, or maybe in regard to a prayer. And so let's look at a few scriptures, first of all, just to lay the foundation of what the scriptures say, and then we'll begin to explain it and raise some questions and answer them. And I trust that when you walk out this morning, your conception of God will be something far greater than what it was before you came in. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, for example, God is rebuking the leadership of Israel. If you look at verse 1, He says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, saith the Lord, the God of Israel is against the pastors that feed my people. You've scattered my flock and driven them away, and you've not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. And he goes on and he talks about the condition of the nation of Israel and how that it is under great judgment because of their sins and their disobedience. And in verse 20, if we pick it up, still making comment about the messages, the teachings that his pa- the pastors are giving, that they are not in line with the Scriptures. 
you can see, for example, like in uh, verse 14, he says, I've seen the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. There's none that returns from his wickedness. They're all of them unto me as Sodom and as, and as the inhabitants of Gomorrah. So he's against the shepherds. He's against the pastors for their failure to preach God's word and to point his people in a direction of righteousness. And he says, The anger of the Lord, verse 20, shall not return until he has executed, until he has performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you shall consider it perfectly. Now we're in the latter days. The Bible speaks about how that it was a, it was a great thing for God to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt thousands of years ago. But he says one day they're going to go into captivity. They're going to be scattered throughout the world. They're going to be under my judgment. And I'm going to return and the deliverance that I'm going to have for that nation will be far greater than in the minds of people than whatever occurred in Egypt. Now they had holidays and celebrations. The Passover pointed to Egypt. But when Christ returns, that deliverance and restoration of Israel will be far greater than what it was at the land of Egypt. But still talking about the pastors, he says, I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesy, verse 21. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. And then he says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Like, he's saying, am I just in a locality somewhere that I can't hear these people? Am I, am I only located in a small portion of the land, and all these things are going on behind my back, and I don't know it? He says no in verse 24. Can any hide himself in the secret places? Then I shall not see him, saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Now that's what God's omniscience is. I told this young man that asked me the other day about what God's omniscience meant. And I said, well, in the book of Jeremiah 23, it talks about how that God fills heaven and earth. Now think about it. We're on the earth right now. And he says his presence fills this earth. That means his presence right now is in this room with us. And this presence is, is everywhere that we go because it fills heaven and earth. We can, in our minds to a certain degree, contemplate the size of the earth, and yet we can't conceive of him filling the earth. But when he talks about the heavens, we're talking about the universe. You see, there is an end to the universe. The universe is not infinite. And all of the stars and the planets and all of the galaxies, which our mind cannot possibly fathom because of its size, God says, I fill heaven and earth. That, in a sense, if you stop and think about it, should really almost stop to raise some questions, but it shows us how other than what our minds contemplate, God is. Now, the prophets of old, the ministers of old, like I said in the past, they had, a, they had a, an understanding of this to a certain degree. If you look over at the Psalms, for example, with David, 
David here in Psalm 139 is praying unto the Lord or worshiping the Lord. And as he's speaking unto him and giving thanks and worshiping God, he makes these statements. He's a far greater conception of, of the nature of God than I dare say most people today. Listen to the psalm. O thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsittings and my uprising. Thou understands my thoughts afar off. He's speaking here of God's omniscience, which we'll minister on in another message. Thou compasses my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. God knows the thoughts of our heart. God knows the thoughts of our mind. He knows every word, every word that we say, every thought that we think. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me, and such knowledge is too uh, wonderful for me. It is too uh, astounding. I cannot attain to it. And then verse 7, he moves away from God's omniscience and talks about his omnipresence. Whether shall I go from thy spirit or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. He says, if I were to go to the grave, you'd be there. If I go up into the heavens, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. He says, even in the depths of the sea. God is in the depths of the sea. He's in the depths of the earth. He is in heaven. He says, I fill heaven and earth. And then again, if you look over to 1 Kings chapter 8, the King Solomon here has built a temple, which his father David was not permitted to build. And at the dedication of this temple, and I'm not going to read everything that is here, but in the dedication of this temple, he makes a prayer unto the Lord, and he expresses unto God, we have built this beautiful temple. And he did. Solomon's temple was glorious in its day. He said, we built this temple. We built this building. But how can a building contain your presence? How can a building contain God? First Kings chapter 8. And I'd like to read the whole thing, but I don't believe that I will. He's just talking here in regard to the uh, temple that has been built. But if we pick up, for example, and verse, well, let's pick up verse 27. He said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. Yet, thou, yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to a supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto thy cry and to thy prayer, which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes might be open toward this house night and day, and even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. I mean, stop for a think and think for a minute. Have you, have you ever really stopped to think? You know, sometimes you just drive around out in the country a little bit and you look around, or maybe you go to a big city and you look around. And you look around at all the people. You drive around the country, for example, 
And you see a farm here, and you see a house here. You see homes all over the place. And you stop to think about this church and its size. You think, how could, how can God, with all of these people, who am, who am I that God would know me? I mean, you go into a big city and you look at the millions of people, thousands of people. You say, how would God, how does God know me? I mean, God has millions of His children that worship Him and follow Him and He talks to them and helps them, answers their prayers, listens to His worship. They're of all different ages and they're of all different races and they're of all different degrees of knowledge and understanding. And yet God all knows every one of them on an intimate, personal basis. I mean, it isn't like he's off in China this morning and he looks at his watch and says, whoa, i got to get back to the States because churches are starting. He isn't localized in any place. He's not in a temple, in a building. You don't build some great, big, huge building and cathedral because you want God to enter into it like he's going to come in and he isn't in some shabby little barn somewhere or house. God is everywhere. You cannot contain him. He's omnipresent. And that's what Solomon said after he built this temple. He was asking for God's presence to come in, but he said, how can you build a house that will contain the presence of the Lord? Over the book of Amos, chapter 9. Amos is an interesting book because it's, it's talking about how that God is very upset with Israel because they failed to walk in obedience and faithfulness to his word. And so he said, I'm going to judge you, Israel. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to scatter you throughout the world, which he did. But as I said earlier in this message, he said, one day I'm going to restore you and I'm going to bring you back. But his omnipresence is mentioned as he's speaking here through the mouth of the prophet Amos. In Amos 8, verse 11, I've got Amos 9 on the, on the screen, but we'll back up a little bit. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, and they'll not find it. And in that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst, and they that swear by the sin of Samaria, thy God, O Dan, liveth, and thy manor of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise again. And I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the post may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. He's saying with Israel, I'm going to judge them and judge them all, because they've been unfaithful to me. Though they, did, though they dig into the earth, from thence they shall, shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, well, then I shall bring them down. You know, he says, you go up into a mountain, I know where they're at. You try to dig down into the earth and hide, I know where you're at. So they hide themselves in the top of Carmel. Mount Carmel was a place that had many, many different caves in it. 
And historically in Israel, if they wanted to hide from their enemies, they'd go up to Mount Carmel and they could get in these caves and they could be protected from their enemies. You remember Elijah was up there hiding from Jezebel. He says, I will search and I will take them out thence, and though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, from thence I will command the serpent and he will bite them. There's nowhere that anyone is going to be able to get away from God's judgment when it comes. You know, I was reviewing some of my teachings on end time events over the last couple of weeks, putting them online. And just listening to them and doing some editing and getting them ready and so forth, it really did a work on my heart that we, we really are in the end times. And when you think about what the book of Revelation has to say and God's judgments upon the earth, he says it will be so severe and strong that the heathens will cry out for the rocks to hide them from the presence of the Lord. But it won't happen. You can't hide from God. God knows what we think, what we say, who we are. His presence fills heaven and earth. Now, while he talks about great judgment on Israel, yet at the same time he promises them a great deliverance in the latter days. In verse 13 he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that sow a seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt, and I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they'll build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and plant vineyards, and drink the wine thereof, and they will make gardens, and eat the fruit thereof, and I will plant them upon their land, and they will no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord. And of course, we look at modern day Israel today, which was a country, a, a people that had no country, and were scattered abroad, and in the 1940s, God brought them back into that land, and he says, this generation will not depart. I don't believe you'll ever see Israel in our day get pulled off the land. You're going to see the Lord return and he's going to bring deliverance and salvation very, very shortly. But he makes that statement in verse 2. He says, you can dig into the earth. You can climb up into the mountain. You can go into the caves of Carmel. You can go into the depths of the sea. You're not going to hide from me because I'm omniscient. I'm everywhere. I know what's going on. Over in Isaiah 66 in verse 1, God the, the um, omnipresence of God is brought out in worship and in prayer and in judgment. And it's also brought out from time to time to whereby God is rebuking his people for their idolatry. Because he says the heathen will make a statue or a, or a picture. Something that they will make and they will call that God. It may be a picture like we've got today. People will look at a picture on the wall and they'll say, that picture is Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's some man that stood before an artist and he, he painted him, and then everybody said, that's Jesus. But that's not Jesus. And God condemns such things in the, in the Ten Commandments. He said, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of anything that is upon the earth, whether it be a, a four-footed creature or something in the sea, or whether it be of man. People make those things and they say, that's Jesus, and then they transfer their affection to that. Or they'll point to a dove, for example, because the Bible speaks about how that when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in the New Testament, it was as a dove. And so all of a sudden now, the dove has some kind of symbolic meaning pointing to deity. It's a, it's a shame. Think about it. I, it's a shame 
that Christians do that and they don't stop and think that they're heading in the same direction as the pagan and the heathen that worships the trees, that worships the animals, that worships the sun and the moon and the rocks. That's their gods. And God rebukes such things. And I realize people do things in ignorance. But as he said in Acts 17, when Paul ran into people that did things in ignorance, he said there was a time when God overlooked it, but he's now calling upon people to repent of that. And not go in ignorance. If it's ignorance, then it's, it just shows the famine in the land of the word of the Lord. In Isaiah 66, in verse 1, Isaiah makes this statement. He says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all these things mine hand hath made, and all those things hath been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. And then he rebukes them for the idolatry that they've gotten into. And a little difficult here, I'll read it, but it's a little difficult to understand. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offers an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burns incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in those abominations. Israel had picked up the heathen practices around them, and they had gone off into idolatry. And God, in the book of Acts, when Paul ran into the, the Greeks, that had many, many gods, and they had many figures and statutes and idols for those gods. He said in Acts chapter 17 and verse 22, they had one statue, they had one God, uh, one God that they said to the unknown God, to the supreme God. And he said, I'm going to reveal this unknown God unto you. In verse, Acts 17, verse 16, it says, While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city given to idolatry. And he disputed it with the, in the synagogue with the Jews and with the religious people in the market daily that met with him. And when they, verse 18, certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and they said, well, what will this babbler say? And some said, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preaches unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him unto Eropagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for, there, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. And Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For I passed by and behold your devotions, and I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. They had all these altars that were to their gods that they had made up, the God of Diana and so forth. Whom you therefore ignorantly worship, him I will declare unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he dwells not in temples made with hands, Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needs anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell upon all the face of the earth. And they determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. 
that they should seek the Lord, and happily they might find him, and if, and find him, though he be not far from any one of us. For in him, because he fills heaven and earth, remember? That means he's here. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As certain of your poets have said, we are uh, also of his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead as likened unto gold or silver or stone or graven by art or man's devices. And the times of this ignorance God overlooked or winked at in the King James, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he has given assurance unto them in that he was raised from the dead. But he says, in him we live and move and have our being. God's omnipresent. He fills heaven and earth. And then look at one more over in Psalm 115. I believe this is the psalm where God is, is mocking Israel because of them following the heathen paganistic ways around them. Because they've brought the God who fills heaven and earth into a figure, a painting, a statue, and they've limited a limitless God. They've brought the God of the universe whom our minds can't even hardly comprehend and brought him down into something that, they can, that they've made with their own minds and their own hands and called it God and worshipped and served that. And he laughs at them. He mocks them because of, of its, the, ridiculous, the ridiculousness of it all. If you look at Psalm 115, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? Our God is in heaven, and he hath done whatsoever he pleases. He's, he's in the heavens. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. And they that make them are like unto them, and so is everyone that trusts in them. <laughs> oh, what a hilarious scripture. God says, men are so ignorant. To put me into the realm of something man-made. And they're just as ignorant as that dumb idol that they worship. God is omnipresent. He cannot be, he cannot be limited by the heavens or the earth. He says, I fill it all. So how can, be, how can God be everywhere at the same time? Well, in John 4.24, he says that God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship Him in spirit and truth. I see some of you turning there. It's the, it's the scripture that Jesus quoted when Jesus was talking to the woman at Samaria. And she said, you say that you should worship in Jerusalem, and we say we should worship in, in Samaria. And He says, well, we're right, but the day cometh when God seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, so He's not limited by space or distance. Everything but God occupies space. Now I want you to think about this, and maybe it will help you to understand it. 
Everything but God occupies space. From a microscopic speck to the universe, the sun, the moon, animals, humans, we all occupy space. Something will occupy space other than God. God as spirit cannot be divided. Some here, some on Mars, some in a believer's heart. You can't chop God up. God says, I fill heaven and earth. Not only does he fill the earth, but he fills all the planets of the universe. He fills the heavens that are around us. Men will look out into the stars and they'll send, you know, air, uh, different telescopes and so forth, different types of uh, spacecraft out into space to try to see farther and farther what's out there. God says, I fill it all. He fills heaven and earth. Pantheism teaches that God is in everything, like the trees, the birds, the fish, the men, or like smoke fills a room. But God is not in an object. God is not in something. They worship a tree because they think God's in that tree. They worship a man-made idol because they think God is in that. That isn't what we're saying. God says, I fill heaven and earth. God is transcendent. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. God is transcendent and imminent. Those are two very important things to remember and to keep you from error. God is transcendent, which simply means that he is supreme, that he is totally other than what we are. He cannot be compared at all to us or anything that is created. He is transcendent. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18, for example. That's why he says, the day will come, and I believe he was talking about when the Holy Spirit would lead and guide men into all truth and give them, win and give them win wisdom and understanding that they would worship God in spirit and in truth. Because they'd be able to understand that you can't create something or take something that is created and identify that with God. God is other than that. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18. You say to me, well, yes, but Jesus right now has a glorified body. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18. He talks here to the nations and he says, well, verse 17. All nations before him as are, not, are as nothing. They are counted to him as less than nothing but vanity. And then listen to what he says here. To whom then will you liken unto God. Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, the goldsmith spread it over with gold and cast silver chains. He that is so impoverished and he that is and he has no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot, and he seeks unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreads out them as a tent to dwell in, that brings the princes to nothing? He makes his, the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken unto me, or shall be my equal, saith the Lord? He's transcendent. There's nothing 
that created nothing on this earth that we could use to compare to God. He's so other than that. That's why shame on people when they take earthly created things and make them out to be things like God. And from the very beginning, he said, don't do that. Lift up your eyes on high and behold who has created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He called them all by names and by the greatness of his might for that he is strong in power and none and not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest thou, Israel, my way is hid from the Lord and my judgment is passed over from God? So he makes the statement there. He's saying that you can't liken anything unto God. God is transcendent. He is other than anything that we can comprehend in our mind. He fills, we're told, heaven and earth. Look at Isaiah 55 and verses 8 and 9. He says the same things here. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and toward God for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, he's trying to say to us that he is transcendent. He is other than what we are. But at the same time, the Bible says that he is imminent. There's no part of space in this universe where God is not actively and personally present. He fills heaven and earth. He's transcendent in that he's so other than what we are that we we cannot comprehend it. It is a mystery, and yet he will talk to us. He will lead us. He will guide us. He will direct us. He will listen to us. He will answer our prayers. He is imminent. He says, I am a present help in time of need. See how unique it is that God is so great that our minds cannot comprehend what His being is like, and yet at the same time, He says He's intimate and personal and loving and merciful and gracious and kind that if we, He says to us, come boldly unto my throne in time of need, and I will be there to help you. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He fills heaven and earth. He's other than anything that is created. And yet at the same time, he will speak to us. He will give us his word. He will tell us what he expects of us. And then he wants us to walk in that keep his commandments, and so forth. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5, listen to what he says here to the nation of Israel. He says, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do in the land whether you go in to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say... Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now listen to this next verse. For what nation is there so great who has God so nigh unto them 
as the Lord our God is in all things that we can call upon Him for. See, those other nations, they could call upon God, but God didn't direct them. He didn't talk to them. He didn't lead them. He didn't guide them. He didn't direct them. So they made images. But He says, the God of Israel, who is our God, is so great that He fills heaven and earth, and yet this great God who is so other than what we are, He is supreme and majestic, even though He is so great, yet at the same time, He will lead us and guide us and direct us and instruct us and teach us. And we can pray unto Him and He will help us. He's transcendent and He is imminent. And so God, as Spirit, fills heaven and earth. And He's transcendent and He's imminent. But it raises questions. Let's talk about a few questions that come up. As I was sharing this, I said earlier, with an individual, the questions started coming forth. They can sit back, and, and if you're not a student in the Word, you can say, I don't really care. But you should care. You should want to know. You should want to understand the deeper things of God. They'll encourage and strengthen your faith in time of need. But there are certain questions that we could raise. If God does not occupy space, then where is heaven? If Jesus has a glorified body and is seated at the right end of the Father... Do glorified bodies occupy space? Where are the angels? Where is hell? Where are the demons? Where is the departed dead? These are all questions that many times people will come up. Well, let's talk about space. What is space? As it pertains to man, it's the form of reality in which created objects exist. This is space. Right here. This is space. If I were to take this pulpit away and move it off to the side, I'd have a space in front of me. And then the moment I put this pulpit in this space, this pulpit occupies the space that are there. Space is emptiness. It's nothingness. And created objects need space. You need to occupy something or else you wouldn't be in existence. What is space? My wife made a cake the other day. It was Father's Day. Well, we knew there was a bunch of brownies coming that were going to be the cake for the day, which is fine. Except we're trying to lose some weight, so we didn't eat any of those delicious fudge brownies that if we get stirred, I'll probably never be able to quit. So she finds a recipe somewhere for fat-free, low-cal carrot cake, you know. And actually, it tasted pretty good. I was sleeping on the couch the other day and uh, just taking a little nap. And she comes up and she put frosting on one of these little miniature things and puts it to my mouth. And I startled because what in the world is that? I couldn't believe it. I don't know what it was, but it just really shook me. But then as I ate it, it was pretty good. But we were we were driving and she said she wanted to make this thing. And I said, all right. And then I, I was going to the Y to work out. She was going to school. And she wanted me to go to to pick up all these ingredients. She hands me the list and I looked at it and it had to be at least 15 things on there and I thought, forget it. I am not going to go walking through Myers or Walmart with this list trying to find, figure out where all this stuff is. Half of it I didn't even know existed. I mean, she, you know, she's telling me this is that and it's in the tofu section and so forth. I'm going, tofu? What's that? I mean, I know what it is, but you get the point. But I walked in yesterday and all this stuff was laying on the counter. Now, she took all these different ingredients 
and she put it into, a, into creating something, and she created a cake. Those ingredients came together as one, and, in, and if you were to walk in the house right now, you'd see this cla uh, glass container with a cake in it. That cake occupies space. I can't take anything else and put it in the space where the cake's at. It occupies that space. If I took, for example, the coffee pot on the, off the stove and tried to put it inside that glass container where that cake is, it wouldn't fit unless I threw the cake out. Created objects need space to exist. God doesn't need space. God is other than that. Space is really mere emptiness, if you think about it. It's nothingness. What we have here in the air, that's nothing but space. And we need space, but God doesn't need it because he's transcendent. We need space for what? Well, to park a car. What do you say? Let's see if I can find a parking what? Space, yeah. Because you can't drive your car into the place that another car is already in because that person... Okay, you can, but we don't want to do that. You're looking around for what? As you're trying to find a parking space for something that is open, that isn't occupying the area where you want to put your car. You've got to have space. If you sit in a chair. My wife is sitting right there in her chair. And if I said to Dolan, go over and sit in that chair, he could sit on her lap, but he can't sit in the same space that she's occupying. Because those objects, you can't have an object taking up something else's space. You could plant a tree. You look out in your yard. You want trees in your yard. And so you go plant a tree. But you can't put, plant a tree where another tree is already there. Because that space is taken up. Or if you want more room in your home, people say, what? I need more what? Space. For what? Store my clutter. Really, that's about what it is. But you've got to add on because you go to open a cupboard door and you go to put something in it and it's filled. Space is taken up. Space is nothingness, but then when, when space is occupied by a created object, whether it be a car, whether it be a human, whether it be an animal, it takes up space. God does not take up space. He's omnipresent. They will install a satellite up in, the, up in space. You can't put another satellite in the same space that that satellite has been put into. And we could go on and on and on. If I took a, brought in a glass of water, for example, the outside shell has already taken up space. But the inside is not. But if I fill up that glass with water, that space is now occupied by what? Water. So created objects need space. No two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. So let me just wrap this all up. God's space, when we say that God fills heaven and earth, it isn't like he fills heaven and earth to whereby now this space is totally occupied so that we could not be in it. Do you understand? If he fills heaven and earth, if he was like what we are, there'd be no room for us. It already would be filled. And I'm trying to make a point. 
He's other than us. And yet people keep trying to want to make Him like us. You remember, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, where the children of Israel, actually what was happening there was Elisha kept having these revelations of how the Syria was going to come after Israel, and he kept telling the king of Israel what was going on, and they would avoid that uh, snare, and they wouldn't get out to battle. And when the Assyrians found out about it, they went after Elisha, and Elisha and his servants said unto him, Don't you know the Assyrians are coming after us? And what did he say? They that be with us are more than they that be with them. Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes. And God opened his eyes, and it says, the mountains and the hills and all around about them were filled with angelic beings. You see, when we say that God is other than us, that he is omnipresent, we're talking about a different dimension. We're talking about a different realm. It'd be difficult for us to understand unless you realize that it's a different dimension. Look at Mark chapter 5, for example. Because we think of how only one object can occupy one space at one time. But here you have a situation where a man has thousands of demons from within, and yet he's still in that same space as one human body. So how in the world can that happen? Because it's a different dimension. In in Mark chapter 5, for example, it says, They came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. But because he had often been bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could they tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus saw him afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Now inside of the man, let me just pause for a minute. Inside that man's space, it's already occupied. The only hollow things that I can think of in our body that would be hollow might be a little bit of an empty stomach, a little bit of an empty intestine. Well, I know that some people probably got more emptiness in their head. I looked over and I could tell there was a comment. And I thought, I'll bet that's what it is. There's air in our lungs, so that's space that could be occupied. Air in your intestines, air in your stomach, air in your head. But do we think now that all these demons, when they were inside this man, they got to find that little area? You know, they're all cramped inside the guy's lungs. They're all cramped inside the guy's stomachs. Where are those at? I mean, if the space is occupied by the heart, by the liver, and by the bones, and by the organs and tissues of the body, then where did they get it? Where did they hide? They obviously what? Must not take up space. It's in a different realm, in a different dimension. He asked them, "Why? what is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him, 
that he would send him not away out of the country. And there was therefore nigh unto the mountain a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. Because this spirits want a body to be able to manifest themselves through. I mean, if they, can, if they can't torment a person, then they can at least torment an animal. And have you ever seen an animal, for example? We call it rabies or other things. You know, and it may be a disease, I'm not saying that, but you see some animals that are really strange in their behavior. Very well, could be a demonically inhabited animal that is manifesting that demon's nature uh, as it comes forth. And so it's, he goes on to say, And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, verse 13, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, and there were about 2,000, and they were all choked in the sea. They all drowned because they couldn't swim. But the point is that there were over 2,000 of these demons that went into these swine. They needed some space to occupy. They needed something to manifest themselves. But the point is what? That they must, it must be something that is in a different dimension. You read in Acts chapter 2, I pointed this out when we were teaching on the book of Acts, how that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and he, uh, when they came unto them in Acts chapter 2 and in verse, in verse uh, 4. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as in the fire, and it sat upon them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, does it mean then that from the bottom of our feet to the top of our head, we're now filled with the Holy Spirit? And He fills us up like water is filled in a glass? No, it doesn't mean that. Because if you read in Acts chapter 4, during a lot of suffering and persecution, they cried out to the Lord for signs and wonders to be brought forth through them. And it says in verse 31 that when they prayed, the place was shaken, and they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. Now, they were already filled, and yet they got filled again. Why? Because the Holy Spirit does not take up space. We need space. We could not exist without space. This area that I'm taking right now, where I'm at, that's my space. You know, you'll hear people say, give me some space. I need my space. What are they talking about? They're crowded. They feel crowded. They want a little room, you know. If you get a woman that, you know, she's tired of a clinging husband, she'll say, give me some space. Which means she wants a little bit of room to live her life outside of the... Don't look at him, Melody. Outside of the confines of her little shell that she's taken up. But if if space, if you took me out of my space, how could I exist? I wouldn't have this area to manifest myself in. God doesn't need space. We need space. God is so other than what we are. So, when the Bible says that God is omnipresent, it's in a different dimension. It's in a different realm. And he says, I fill heaven and earth. Angels don't fill heaven and earth. Demons don't fill heaven and earth. Seraphims and cherubims don't fill heaven and earth. And at the same time, yet the Bible describes features about God. Now, sometimes they are just figures of speech. 
But what about New Jerusalem? Remember when we taught about the eternality of God? We said this 1,000-mile or 1,500-mile cube, brother, is going to come down to this new heavens and new earth, and we're going to dwell therein. There, there still were dimensions that were given. And so somehow God is in a, 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 in a state of being spirit, but still He sits upon a throne. And He has a glorified body. And when He... One day Moses said, Lord, show me thy glory. He said, no man can see my glory and live. But God said, I'm going to put my hand over your eyes and walk, walk away, and then I'm going to let my hand go, and what you're going to see is my back parts. Well, God doesn't have a backside like us. It's a figure of speech. But God permitted him to see more of him than what others up to that point had ever been able to see. It was a figure of speech. But somehow God has a shape, and yet he fills heaven and earth. So all I can say, and I'm going to close with this, is that there must be some kind of spiritual space. It's in a different dimension. It's in a different realm. Those demons needed space. Those, an angel takes up space. But they take up space in a spiritual realm, and so it, it has a shape, it has a form. Jesus has a glorified body, but he's not in this dimension. It isn't like if we went up into the sky and looked around, we'd see all of our past loved ones, and they're taking up our space, only it's up in heaven. Like a woman said to me one time, Jesus needed to get down into the depths of the earth to get the keys to heaven and earth. And in her mind, I mean, she really believed this, that somehow she thought that hell was in the earth and there were literal keys that he had to get to go and unlock a, a door in heaven to let people in or something. And I said, no, 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 no. This is a totally different dimension. It's transcendent. Something totally other than what you can comprehend. But let me give you an analogy and I'm going to close. Think about light. I thought about bringing in two flashlights to show you this. But I was afraid if we, if we turn all the lights off. Well, first of all, I was afraid some women might get afraid. And I didn't want, I didn't want to see crying pregnant ladies. And I wasn't quite sure if we could get it dark enough to be, make the point. But do you remember there are times, for example, it used to be a lot more when I was younger than now. But whenever there was a county fair, you could look out through the sky and you'd see these Great big beams of light that would be going across. Remember? And I think they might have been remnants from the old Korean World War II days or whatever where they were trying to find airplanes or something that were going through the sky, enemy aircraft coming through. Now you have such radar you don't need anything like that. But can you remember in your mind as you look out and you saw those big white beams that were going around? That light beam does not take up space, but it has a shape. Hello? If you were to take a cutout, let's say, of a rabbit or a cutout of a star and put it on the end of the flashlight and shine it out, you would find that there would be a light beam that would have the shape of a star, but it doesn't occupy space. I mean, look, I'm standing in this light. This light doesn't occupy space. But it's a beam. If we were to somehow be able to show that beam coming down, it's got a shape. Those two 
those big powerful lamps that would shoot off into the sky. When I was a young boy, I'd be able to see sometimes where you'd see them cross. You know, like this, you'd see them go together. And they could go together. It isn't like they came and all of a sudden, boom, they stopped. And the light couldn't go any further because it was running into an object that was filling up space. Space wasn't created. Something very real, something that had shape, something that didn't occupy space. Now, I'm not saying that God is a beam of light, although he says he's light. But we serve a God who's so other than what we are. God is not a man that he should lie. Remember Numbers 23 19? We started on that scripture. God is not a man. But at the same time, he says, come boldly to my throne in time of need. And he will help us and secure us and direct us and guide us. Because he loves us. We serve a God who, is, who fills heaven and earth. He's transcendent, and yet at the same time, he's imminent. And he is our Lord. Amen. Father, we ask the blessing, your blessing on the word. A very deep, profound, mysterious subject. Probably a little hard to some degree to understand. But yet, as we read the scriptures and we see of old, the wise men like Solomon, and the prophets and kings like David, and the prophets of old, they understood these things. And they were men and women that had a great, strong faith. And you've told us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by your word. So I pray the Holy Spirit would minister this word to our hearts, that we would, that we would take by faith what the scriptures say, and not try to put limits upon a limitless God. We ask your blessing on this truth. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.